0: From coast to coast City to city, coast to coast It's time for the Ryan Hickey Show On the Worldwide Sports Radio Network If it's happening in sports It's being talked about right here
1: And here's your host, Ryan Hickey Good. Monday morning, welcome into the Ryan Hickey Show right here, where else, but the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Hopefully you had a great weekend, a very enjoyable weekend, hopefully yours was better than, I don't know, maybe either Will Smith's or Chris Rock's, depending on how you view the entire situation that went down last night, the Oscars. Of course, we will have a ton of sports to get into between now and 11 a.m. Eastern, which, if you're just tuning us, uh, in for the first time, that is when the Ryan Hickey Show goes until on this Monday morning. We'll break it all down. We've a lot of sports to hit on here. Tom Brady maybe to the Dolphins. We have the Final Four locked and loaded. But, of course, the big news sweeping the internet. The big news coming out of the weekend is what happened at an award show. And we'll dabble. We'll hit on it here in just a second because, man, there is a lot to discuss. A lot to break down. From that infamous, infamous night at the Oscars last night. As always, we're coming to you live from the Big Italy Pizza Studios. Now, whether it's great pizza, hot heroes, and phenomenal dinners, make sure you check out bigitalypizza.com to find a location near you. So, that's the big question of the morning. Was the slap real? Was Will Smith charging up on stage and slapping Chris Rock? Was that a real emotional decision? Or was it scripted? Was it fake? Was it planned the entire time? I'm going with planned. I think the slap was fake. I think the slap was fake for two reasons. Number one, I don't think Will Smith is actually that mad. Like, do you, for everyone, like, this is, like, the biggest night in movie, uh, of the movie calendar, right? You put all of the hard work into uh, making your movies, Um, And now you finally reach judgment day, if you will. I know the box office is one judgment day and reviews are one thing, but now you are being graded amongst your peers. Now the people you respect in the industry are the ones voting on whether your work was the best or not. So this is obviously by far the biggest, biggest night in Hollywood. So if you're going to do something wild and crazy, like charge up on stage at a comedian in Chris Rock who's making a joke about your wife, you got to be extremely mad. Like if you're on a a one to 10, you're on a level 15. There's just, you're seeing red, you almost go into a blackout stage and you don't think about anything else till later on. And the thing was, if you go back and watch, Will Smith at the beginning is not very mad. He's not very upset. When Chris Rock is making his G.I. Jane joke about J, uh, Jada Pinkett Smith, Will Smith is laughing, guys. He is laughing. He is a laughing at the initial joke when it was made. If you were that upset where you're going to go slap someone, I don't think the first thing you're going to do or your first reaction is to find the joke that was made at your wife's expense funny. You see Jada Pinkett Smith, her reaction kind of eye roll she was not amused she was not feeling the joke all of a sudden she gives Will Smith a look and that changes everything now look I get it I get the saying happy wife happy life I get you know you gotta try to defend your woman if she feels upset you gotta you know try to have her back I get it but to go from zero to a hundred that fast where you go from laughing at a joke to 30 seconds later charging on stage I don't think it's something human emotions can can dictate, can control in that short of a time span. I don't. I'm sorry. It would be one thing, too, if Chris Rock kept it going. If he made two, three, four, five jokes in a row and just kept kind of going on and on and on and egging it on the entire time. It was one joke, kind of let it sit there, and then was ready to move on before Will Smith made that big charge upstage. But again, even if your wife is upset about it, when you start laughing and when your first reaction is to find it funny rather than get upset, I think if you want to still make an impression to your wife and show that you have her back, while also trying to not you know go too crazy, easily you can handle this off stage. Easily, that's one of those things where the awards given out, we go to commercial break. Okay, Will Smith gets up, goes meets to you know goes to meet Chris Rock in the back, and they have a discussion. Maybe there. Maybe there, if you want to get into a little slap fight, you could do so, and it's really ho-hum, and I'm sure not a lot of people would be talking about it, and it would not be as public as it was going right upstage. So I think it's fake because, again, I don't see how you can go from laughing to then doing one of the, the craziest things we've ever seen at an awards show in the span of 30 seconds where you go from, from happy and jovial to bleeding mad. Go, you know almost going from 0 to to 100 or going definitely 0 to 100 in a span that quickly. So I don't think you're making an entire scene about what happened if you weren't outraged at the beginning. If you weren't ready to just rip someone's head off as soon as Chris Smith even mentioned uh Chris Rock, excuse me, even mentioned your wife's name. But number two also, I think that this is an overlooked part that's important here. Chris Rock and Will Smith are friends. They're friends. So if Will Smith actually had a problem with Chris Rock and the jokes he was making, I think they would have squashed this beef a long time ago. I think they would have handled it off stage if he was actually upset and didn't want to just make a, a big push or maybe was instructed by the Oscars to make a big push here to get some ratings. Like, I, I did see it last night a lot of people referencing the 2016 Oscar Awards where Chris Rock made some more jokes because Jada Pinkett Smith uh, boycotted the Oscars because she was upset about the lack of representation of black um, actors and actresses that are getting awards. So she boycotted it. Chris Rock had a few, you know, had himself a few jokes, had a good time. And I've seen people trying to connect. Oh, look, he was so upset from what happened six years ago that now, you know, that coupled with the joke tonight, he just lost it and tried to send a message. Look, number one, they're friends. So if he was truly upset with what happened in 2016, I can promise you, they're talking about it. We all have friends. We all get in fights. We all have friends that say maybe comments that, in your mind, go too far. So what happens? You don't just sit there in silence and let it stew and let it stew and let it stew and then five years later, punch your best friend and go, oh, remember what you said five years ago? Yeah, knock it off. No, if you have a problem, you bring it up. It doesn't have to get physical, but you say, hey, knock it off. That's not something that, you know, I'm appreciative. That's a boundary. That I think you are crossing the line and going too far. on." When you're a friend, you have the ability to do that. So I don't think this 2016 clip that was going viral that I've seen a lot of people be like, oh, I get it. It's understandable what, what, what Will Smith did. It makes sense. You're not holding a grudge that long. You're not. I wish it was real. I really do. This would have been a lot more fun, a lot more intriguing. Not to mention, I respect the hell out of grudge holders. I love people that can sit there and remember and stew on things for years and years and years and then make good on it, get their revenge somehow. Like I never forget last year, um, in 2020, I guess I should say at this point now, with, with us being in 2022, but in 2020, when you had the Bucks and the Chiefs meet in the regular season, You had Tyreek Hill go for like 200 yards in the first half, a few touchdowns. He lit up the Tampa Bay secondary. He was showboating. He's throwing his famous deuces up as he's running by everyone in the secondary. And then a few months later, in the Super Bowl, as we know, the Buccaneers had their way. Defense completely shut down uh, the Chiefs offense. And later in the game, Antoine Winfield Jr., after an incomplete pass, I believe was fourth down to kind of Really ice the game. He goes right up to Terry Kill. Squats down in his face. Drops the deuces. I love the, I love the grudge. I love the pettiness that you can kind of use and people use and harness and save and kind of use that for fuel moving forward. But I don't think you're holding a grudge for six years about something that your friend said at an award show. I don't. So I think it's fake personally because I don't think you can actually go from laughing to outrageously incensed. In the span of like 10 seconds. And not to mention, if you truly had a problem, if Will Smith truly did not appreciate any joke um, towards his wife, again, him and Chris Rock are friends. I think you're squashing this long before it even becomes an issue. And the kibosh has put on that long, long, long ago. Not to mention, oh, the Oscars needed this. Now, look, obviously, I'm not their demographic. I am not really a big movie buff. I am more of a sports guy. I, I have to get more cultured. I completely agree. But that was something that was not really on my radar last night. And to their credit, it got me to watch. The Oscars has lost a lot of juice. Not a lot of people have been tuning in. But how you get people back, how you get people to tune in is to try to have them watch and see what's going to happen next. You don't Because you don't know. Right? Obviously, you want to see the awards happen. But now, when you have Will Smith, smacking Chris Rock, Everyone's tuning in to see what's going to happen next. Is is Will Smith going to win the award for Best Actor, and is he going to address it? I know for me, I tuned in. They got me for the fifteen minutes that was leading into the award, and then the whole Will Smith speech afterwards. I was watching. I was watching last night an award show that for Best Actor, I didn't see any of the five movies where the actors were nominated. I didn't even hear about or didn't even know about for the five movies that even were out there that existed that were um, nominated. So I knew nothing about last night. And yet I was still tuned in because of the slap. Because to see now what's going to happen next. Is it going to address? It? Is he going to apologize? Will we have Chris Rock coming out on stage and giving his own slap? We were captivated. That's what the Oscars needs. They needed to recapture an audience because the event was stale. That, to me, is why the slap went down last night. I don't think it's real. I don't think if you were Will Smith, that is the um, breaking point for you. He's a comedian, Chris Rock is. He upsets everyone. I don't think that you are crossing the line or you're getting that upset about one joke made about your wife. I don't. I don't. That's a massive decision to make, and I think it was all scripted in the end. Not to mention, final the last thing I'll say about this. You see Will Smith's form? Almost a whole torso swing. It didn't even, it looked like a slap that, again, you would see in a movie. If you were truly outrageously mad, and trust me, to walk up on stage, if this was real, To walk up on stage and slap someone in the middle of the award show, which again, is the biggest night in your profession. You got to be outrageously incensed. You have to be so mad that again, you're seeing red and blacking out. I don't think all of a sudden you're going to deliver a slap with that form. The perfect torso. I think you're going up there and really leaving a good smack And actually, we'll hear a good smack, which more sounded like a thud. So I think, personally, it was fake. I'm not believing that it was real. I think there's too many different reasons to point out that it was being scripted that make more sense than it just, Will Smith losing his mind. I really do. So if you were going to have a fake slap, you would do it with two friends, which Chris uh, Chris Rock and Will Smith are. You're not doing it with two strangers. You're due to two friends that will be able to work together, have it go down, and still be friends afterwards, because now it's a big, divisive topic today. So if it's real, love to know your reasoning. We'll get your thoughts uh, at Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter, at Ryan Hickey Show. You can write on Facebook, Worldwide Sports Radio Network, or on YouTube, Worldwide Sports Radio Network. So we will continue to discuss this, but also, we got to get some sports to talk about. We have a final four that is set in college basketball. A few takeaways from this weekend's action that we will get into when we return. Listen to the Ryan Hickey show right here on the Worldwide Sports, World Sports
0: Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey show right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network.
1: Welcome to the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. What a what a day yesterday was for what was supposed to be just a Sunday headlined by two great Elite Eight games instead turns into one of the most memorable Sundays we will ever have because of what happened between Will Smith and Chris Rock but also let's not forget let's not allow to be overshadowed that we got a Final Four set Kansas Villanova Duke, North Carolina and what is going to be an historic matchup between the two Blue Bloods a few different takeaways I have from what we saw from the Sweet 16, Elite 8 and now that we have the Final Four teams um, in the Final Four field set for me Coming out of this weekend, I think Kansas is by far the best team. If Kansas and if they can play the rest of the tournament like they did in the second half against Miami on Sunday, they're winning the championship. It is their championship to lose because I don't think Duke at their best, North Carolina at their best, or Villanova at their best can bring down the Jayhawks. Because what we saw yesterday is Kansas played one of the most complete and dominant halves of any team that's played this season. They were incredible. Everything was working for them. They shot 59% from the floor. They went 16 to 27. As a team in the second half, scored 47 second half points, really tail two halves. where well, the first half wasn't awful, but the second half, everything was clicking on the offensive and defensive end. That helped them outscore Mammy 47 to 15. 47 of 15, a 32-point difference. They led the Jayhawks' cruise to a blowout victory over the Hurricanes. And the big difference, especially in the second half, was a three-ball falling. No one on Kansas could hit a three in the first half, literally. Oh, for the first half. Hit five in the second half, and that really took the offense, you know, and took it from first gear to third gear immediately. And this is one of those areas where if they can get the three ball to land consistently, again, there's no team that's beating them. We know they're dominant down low. Kansas is by far one of the teams that scores, you know, in the paint um, a majority, a large majority of their points. They live down low. We saw it even a lot of the first half, whether it's Christian Brown, Ochai Abaji, More Cormac, Martin. Wilson they all are able to get down low get to the rim and score in the paint but now if you have teams starting to take that away by clogging the paint dropping three four defenders down low and you are now hitting your threes because you're going to be getting open looks it's over it's over so whether it's Carolina whether it's Duke whether it's Villanova if as long as Kansas can continue to hit their threes I don't see how anyone can keep up. Kansas, by far, is the team, I think, that's going to win the title. And I think it has the best chance to win the title because, again, they have a ton of talent. They play really well on the defensive end of the floor. They can score down low easily. And, again, now, if you could just get that three ball to land, which it did in the second half, look out. They are, they are the team that no one else is going to be taking down. So I think Kansas showed you in the second half how truly dangerous they can be. We are getting an historic, historic North Carolina-Duke rematch because now it is the first meeting of these two blue bloods, these two hated rivals in the NCAA tournament. And I hate to say it. I really do. I'm not a Duke fan. I'm not really a Coach K fan. But seeing how this is shaping up, this is starting to feel like Destiny. That Duke is beating Carolina and getting to the national title game. And I hate to say, I know I just said two seconds ago, I think Kansas is winning. Yeah, I do. I still am going to pick that. This is starting to feel like destiny. Like Coach K getting that last championship in his final year as head coach. Because the story's already writing itself. You can already see the 30 for 30 promo working at, you know, in real time. Think about it. Duke has been around for forever right their basketball program started in 1905 unc five years later they were uh, founded in 1910 the blue devils have made the ncaa tournament 44 times in their history unc now 52 so there's a lot of history obviously these two schools have been around for over well over a century there have been so many opportunities 44 in fact really a little less but There have been dozens of opportunities for these two Blue Bloods to meet some point or in some point somewhere in the NCAA tournament. And the fact that now, in Coach K's final season as head coach, going to the Final Four, they are finally seeing North Carolina for the first time in tournament history feels like destiny, feels like the perfect revenge point for Coach K to avenge the home loss. Like, like, can't you see the thirty for thirty starting with that with that final home game when North Carolina comes in and plays spoiler and on Coach K's final home game with all the alum, with all the former players, with so many different celebrities in the stands to what was supposed to be a final send off from Cameron Indoor, and instead had the party rained on by the Tar Heels, then have what was because of the loss a cringeworthy post game ceremony. Where Coach K even before the ceremony starts apologizes to the fans, then has to give you know a a speech and has to kind of let his emotions go after losing by 13 points at home to the Tar Heels in the final game of his career at home. Can't you see now that starting we get the music, maybe it fades to black and white, and all of a sudden then it says, "But Coach K, that was not his final time. Destiny would work." In Coach K's favor. I can absolutely see now. And there's no really no way I can't see Duke losing this game. I think there are a few different times you could feel destiny, where just a team you know is gonna win because of the situation going into it, because of the story that's building, where it's just there's no way they're gonna lose this game. That's how I feel about Duke. That's how I feel about this blue blood rivalry rematch in the final four. I would be shocked. Absolutely shocked if North Carolina plays spoiler again. They're getting their opportunity. Duke used to get revenge. They're getting their opportunity, by the way, on the biggest stage possible and the final fourth, a chance to go to the national title where this Duke team was written off. They struggled a little bit down the end. You know, they lose that game to Carolina at home, then they lose to Virginia Tech in the ACC uh, championship final. There was a team that I slept in. Duke looked like a team that was not truly ready for the big moment. And now here they are with a chance to get revenge and send Coach K in his final year on the bench to the national title game in order to win his sixth national title. It doesn't happen too often where you feel like the story is writing itself in the moment. That's what it feels like with this Duke North Carolina rival uh, matchup. I should say in the Final Four. It feels like destiny. I hate to say it, Duke. That Duke is going to win this game. I can't see them losing it. And this is setting up perfectly for the revenge tour of Coach K to so get one last dagger in at his hated rival. But I do want to focus on the North Carolina perspective here for one reason, because their turnaround this year has been insanely impressive. And the job Hubert Davis has done is by far one of the best of any college basketball coach this season. First of all, let's just talk about how hard it is to replace the guy, right? What's the old saying? You never want to be the guy replacing the guy. You always want to be the guy replacing the guy who replaced the guy. Roy Williams at North Carolina was the guy there, obviously one of the staples and one of the most successful college basketball coaches in history. Him walking away after last year in somewhat surprising fashion, put a huge amount of pressure on Hubert Davis to try to fill massive shoes of Roy Williams. Think about it 485 games won just at Carolina alone, three national titles he brought to Chapel Hill. Trying to take over and trying to, uh, you know, replace a legend, Roy Williams, is impossible. It's literally impossible. So he already had, excuse me, <laughs> Hubert Davis, an uphill battle even before. Anything for him got going. Then, look how the season's gone on so far for the Tar Heels. It was up and down, and it really hit a low point in mid-February. And Two weeks after the season, this was a team who who lost a, a game to a really, really bad Pittsburgh team. And that kind of, not that loss, but also the way Carolina's played, that was a little bit up and down and inconsistent this year. They were on the bubble for most of the year. They were truly cemented in once they beat Duke in the final game of the year. That locked them in to a tournament berth. But really, for being on the bubble for most of the year to losing uh, a game against one of the worst teams in the ACC with just two weeks left in the season, to UNC's credit and to Hubert Davis's credit, since that loss, he has turned this team around and they have been one of the hottest teams in all the country. And now... They marched their way into the Final Four after a very impressive run, after an improbable run, by, mind you, where they had one of the toughest roads to get to the Final Four, in which they had an incredible game against Baylor where they're up 25 points at one point. One of their best players, Brady Manic, gets ejected in the second half. That turns the tide to where Baylor erases a 25-point deficit, ties the game Gets it overtime. And about you. I remember watching that game thing. if this game gets overtime, it's over, Baylor's winning. Like, the longer that game went, the less of a chance North Carolina had. So as soon as it got to overtime, I didn't think there was a chance in hell. The Tar Heels were winning. So Hubert Davis' credit, the team didn't panic. They didn't falter. They weren't feeling sorry for themselves because of the ejection, because of, they blew a 25-point lead. And their officiating in that game was a little bit sketchy as well. But... They kept on going. They kept on fighting. They stayed resilient and mentally tough. And to their credit, won the game. One of the most impressive wins of the tournament just for how it went down. When you have that high of high, when you're blowing out the defending national champs, then you allow them to tie the game late. All the momentum is on their side and to still then come out on the other side and win the game, kind of take a few punches and be able to punch back. Super impressive. Gritted out a very tough game against UCLA. Blew out St. Peter's. And you could tell even going back to that Duke game to close out the regular season. They have been playing with a lot of confidence. Despite the fact that for the most part of their season, they've had no real reason to be confident. They've had no real reason to come in with, with swagger like they're one of the best teams in the country. But Hubert Davis has been able to instill that mindset because they look like a different team than last month. They're executing at a very high level. They have, you know, they're getting tremendous play from, really, the, you know, all five starters have been, you know, have been reliable, have been con, uh, contributing in all different ways. This Carolina team has really had an incredible turnaround year. And, you, you know, the phrase you want is, you always only playing your best basketball at the end of the season. But Any sport, as we know, you want to play your best basketball or your best, you um, your best part of the season, you want to be at the end of the year. You want to be peaking at the right time. You never want to be peaking too early in the year, whether it's right out of the gate or whether it's midway through the year. You want to be building up to by the time playoffs come, whatever sport it is, you are playing your best brand of basketball, baseball, football, whatever. And to Carolina's credit, they are doing that. They are really the epitome of that. Up and down, up and down, up and down. Now it's only been up. Since mid-February for Carolina, it's only been up a lot of credit for Hubert Davis goes to him for getting Carolina in the biggest point of their season to be playing their absolute best. It's going to be a blast watching them take on Duke in the Final 4. I'm really pulling hard for Carolina. Again, I just feel like this is one of those destiny runs for Duke that they're going to win this game. Really pulling hard hard for the Heels to win the last two and really kind of in heartbreaking fashion. Send Coach K out of college basketball with just two infuriating losses to his arch rival. And finally here, give, give some love to Villanova. Because really what Jay Wright is doing, he is the model of consistency right now in college basketball. Because since winning their first title back in 2016, he is, Jay Wright has turned this Wildcats program into a national powerhouse. And it's all because of their consistency. This is now the third Final Four in the last six tournaments for Nova. From a team that could never win the big game, that always found a way to choke away in the tournament and lose a bad game they never should or always fall short of making the Final Four, Jay Wright, once he got through that hump, got into the Final Four, won the tournament back in 2016, this Wildcats program has been the model of consistency and all they have done is win 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 they have the most tournament wins since 2016. they continue even though players cycle in and out they continue to play at an extremely high level and a large reason for that starting with Jay Wright is that they do a lot of those little things right like, especially in college basketball we have seen it is not the most prettiest and clean product there's a lot of missed shots a lot of bad turnovers rebounding mistakes free throw misses right it is it is a very sloppy sport but I think one of the reasons why March is so exciting and so unpredictable is because that's sloppiness because we see more turnovers than you would ever expect that change the game one way or another we see more missed free throws that keep teams that are losing in the game longer allows them more opportunities to come back but to Villanova's credit they play an extremely clean and crisp style of basketball. They do a lot of the little things right that allows them to, again, win a lot of these close games and don't either blow leads or don't let bad teams back in it. They do all the little things to close the game out on a game in and game out, game out basis. And I thought Saturday against Houston in their Elite Eight game was a perfect example of that. They were hitting nothing from the field. Both defenses, for them and Houston, were playing lights out. They were physical. They were in your face. They made the entire 40-minute game on both sides hell in a cell. And the final score says it all. But Villanova did the small things like going to the line and hitting their free throws. 15 for 15 on their free throws on Saturday. They They got to the line, and when they got to the line, they made the most of it. They are number one in the country this year. In terms of free throw percentage, 74%. That is going to win you a lot of games. That is going to close out a lot of games. Because when teams are fouling you late, excuse me, you are able, they are able, to close the game out by not allowing anyone to get second and third opportunities. They hit their free throws again. 74% as a team is one of the highest in college basketball history. They've been tremendous at the line. They rarely turn the ball over. So again, the two easy areas in college basketball that allow teams uh, that are losing to come back and win, miss free throw shooting, turnovers. And Villanova was one of the best at free throw shooting and hitting their free throws and one of the best at ball security. Not turning it over and instead turning you over. Getting extra opportunities for them on offense, but not allowing other teams extra opportunities on defense. They have had a tremendous season so far, and again, third final four in the last six tournaments just shows how consistent Jay Wright has built this program. It's been incredible to watch. Now, their next game uh, Saturday against Kansas is going to be tough with their with Justin Moore unfortunately going down with an uh, with an Achilles. If you remember, if you watch the replay, you saw kind of the pop in the calf cylinder when Kevin Durant tore his Achilles. Very sad. You see, especially so late in the game, you really hope he's okay going forward, but that's a big loss now for Villanova um, as they head to the Final Four. So I think, for me, Kansas is still the team to beat, but this is feeling more and more like destiny for Duke facing Carolina for the first time in NCAA tournament history with Coach K getting a chance at revenge after the Tar Heels played spoiler in his home finale just a few weeks ago. So I have Kansas still winning it all. How about yourself here? Who do you have as we have final the final four teams uh, in the field set? Kansas, Villanova, Duke, North Carolina. who do you have winning? Tweet me at Ryan Hickey show on Twitter. Uh, also at WWSRN underscore radio is our um, company handle. Facebook, we're there worldwide sports radio network. YouTube we are there also worldwide sports radio network. When we return, I want to throw some NFL news by you here. There are some reports in the last week suggesting and hinting that Tom Brady could be playing for another team that's not the Buccaneers in 2022. I'll tell you who that team is and if it's realistic or not when the Reinicke show returns right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It's the World Wide Sports Radio.
0: Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show, right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network,
1: and welcome back into the Ryan Hickey Show, where else but the Worldwide Sports Radio Network? So I want to get into a report here that is very interesting that that did catch my eye, and that is that maybe Tom Brady could be playing elsewhere in the NFL next year and not the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. There's a report that is saying that Tom Brady and the Dolphins are working together on a deal to get the GOAT to Miami. And when I hear that report, when I see that report, for me, it makes zero sense. It absolutely makes zero sense for Tom Brady to play for the Dolphins this season. Whether it's the actual team that's constructed, whether it's the conference the Dolphins are in, Miami, either way you look at it, is a downgrade for Brady. So where this report got steam, why it is a report that is being taken seriously, is because Dale Arnold of Nesson is the one who tweeted out ago. He tweeted that he would not be surprised if Tom Brady doesn't play for the Buccaneers next season and instead plays for the Dolphins. He also wanted to point out that Gronk hasn't signed or re-signed with the Buccaneers just yet, kind of hinting that maybe Tom is thinking about going elsewhere. Now, the reason why this is getting a lot of attention and a lot of belief is because Dale Arnold, was who used to work for WEEI up there in Boston, the radio station, he was the first person that said Tom Brady's going to Tampa Bay after his announced anath- that he's leaving New England. We didn't really know where he was going to go. I was shocked that it was Tampa Bay, like many people, to be completely honest. But Dale Arnold was the first that said Tom Brady is leaving, and he is going to Tampa Bay. So there is someone who was in the know that is clearly connected somewhere to the Tom Brady camp. So him now putting out that he would not be surprised if Tom Brady is playing for the Dolphins next season instead of the Buccaneers. Yeah. It does have some weight, and you take it more seriously than you would if it was just a random Twitter user throwing that out there. But I don't believe the support for one reason one very simple reason why I can't find this to be true. Going from Tampa to Miami goes against everything Tom Brady stands for. Like the man is driven by one thing and one thing only winning. He wants to compete. He's always driven to win the next Super Bowl. He famously said multiple times, my favorite Super Bowl is the next one. He's always driven to win. There's always something that he finds to motivate him to get him going to try to win the very next year. And when you look at, when it comes to winning, his best chance of winning an eighth Super Bowl, it's coming in Tampa Bay, not Miami. He's in a way better spot to win in Tampa with the Bucs than if he goes to the Dolphins to play for what used to be a hated division rival when he was with the Pats. Because when you look at, at least from a roster perspective, the team around Tom Brady, the team in Tampa is built better, is just frankly more talented than the one they got in Miami. Like Even when you look at some of the positions like offensive line, where even though they lost Alex Kappa in free agency, where Ali Marpet retired, two really you know solid players on the inside of that interior offensive line, it is still Tampa's. Even with the loss of those two players, Tampa's O-line is still better than Miami's, and that is one of the most important factors Tom Brady has to look at when deciding whether to play for the Buccaneers or the Dolphins. Because guess what? Tom Brady is a miracle man, yes. He's 45 years old, still playing at an extremely high level. Last year was one of the best years of his career at 44 years old. He continues to defy logic. It doesn't make any sense. With that said, though, one of the best ways for him, one of the most important areas for him at 45 to have success is having an O-line in front of him that can keep him upright. He's not very mobile as we know, so he's not running out of the pocket. And one of the, one of the reasons, whether it's the TB12 method, whether it's the avocado ice cream, whether it's the, the water or the weighted pajamas, they all help Tom Brady be still this good at 45. But one of the biggest reasons why he is playing football at 45 years old is because he doesn't take any hits. The offensive line, for the most part, around him has always been pretty solid. He gets the ball quick, and even when there's an incoming uh, rusher, he drops down to avoid the hit. He rarely leaves himself susceptible to big-time hits. And I know Miami was able to, you know, sign Teron Armstead, the best tackle in the Frazier market they just got him last week. This Miami offensive line still has a long ways to go, to being up to the level that can keep Tom Brady upright on a consistent basis. This was, I would argue, I would say, the worst offensive line last year in the NFL. The Dolphins, if I had to rank 1 through 32 offensive line, which maybe we'll do that one too, because I'm sure everyone loves to hear offensive line rankings, the Dolphins will be 32. They were awful last year. And so I get, yes, they made some adjustments and they have beefed it up a little bit, but this is still an O-line that needs a lot of work that's not very good. Where you look at Tampa, even though they lost two really good players, they are still a lot better and a lot more capable of keeping Tom Brady upright than Miami could. So just for that fact alone, the Dolphins make no sense for Tom Brady. Because if they can't keep you upright, if you're going to constantly have players in your face, number one, that's where you play at your worst. And that's how your career gets cut short before you want it to. O-line at Tampa, way better than the O-line in Miami. But it's not just the O-line. It goes further than that. Bucks have a better run game. They just signed uh, resigned Leonard Fournette, a weapon that Tom Brady has used at his disposal a ton the last two years. We look at Miami, in part because of that really bad offensive line, they had the third worst rushing attack last season. They have really struggled to establish a run. Basically, they haven't been able to at all. And again, I know Tom Brady throws the ball a lot. Last year, he led the NFL in both attempts and completions. So it's not like Tampa Bay is really trying to establish a run a ton. But to Tampa's credit, when they had to run the ball, when they needed to run the ball, they've been able to. So they don't do it often. They don't do it a ton. But they've been able to run the ball at a consistent uh, pace when they've had to compared to Miami, who's just, again, in a really bad spot with their O-line. So the run game is not very effective for Miami. The offensive line in Miami is still, even with the additions that they've made this offseason, nowhere near what it should be compared to the Tampa Bay offensive line. You have better weapons on the outside uh, in Tampa than you do in Miami. I really like Chris Goblin. I know he's coming off the ACL injury, but he's still a really capable and reliable receiver. Mike Evans is a stud. And now you had Russell Gage, a really solid receiver coming over from the Falcons to bolster that number three spot that kind of was a void in Tampa last year. So I know the, the Dolphins just added, right, Tyreek Hill, and now I add him to Jalen Waddell and Devontae Parker and Mike Gusecki. So I get there are some names that are starting to pile up in Miami. I still would favor, though, the weapons Tampa Bay has over the Dolphins. Not to mention, I do think one of the most important factors that are, that is going for Tampa is continuity. It took Tom Brady 12 games in 2020 to get on the same page uh, with his receivers and his O-line and really feel comfortable in the offense. Look, I get that that year resulted in a Super Bowl, but again, he has continuity now with his receivers. Everyone's on the same page and everyone is very comfortable in the offense. I don't know why if you're Tom Brady, you would leave that to start all over yet again and work and work and work to build continuity and start from the ground floor where you could stay, you know, stay in Tampa and just get better and better, keep on building for what you've established so far for the first two years. So when it comes to or comes to a team perspective, I think the Buccaneers are more talented. They are in a better spot for Tom to succeed individually and on the field, uh, and you know, in, in the win column right now more than Miami when it comes to what is built around uh, Tom Brady. And then when you look at and you take a step further and you look at the conference that Brady is currently in versus the conference he would like to get or reportedly would like to get traded to, the NFC is so much more attractive, such a better conference to be in right now than the AFC. So I don't know if you're Tom Brady, why you would all of a sudden request a trade to go to a gauntlet in the AFC Where it's right now a cakewalk for you in the NFC. Like, if you look at it, 2022, the Buccaneers have one team they have to worry about. There's only one team standing in Tampa's way when it comes to making their second Super Bowl appearance in three years. That's the Rams. Beat them last year. Rams are still really damn good, right? They basically, the only loss they've suffered is Von Miller so far in free agency. They've added Allen Robinson to make that wide receiver core even deeper and more talented than it already was. So I think that this Rams team is still going to be a, a handful, but that's the only team that's legitimately going to give Tampa a run for their money. The Packers this season got worse. Sure, you bring back Aaron Rodgers, I get it. You cut uh, Zedarius Smith and you traded the best receiver in the NFL DeVonta Adams. The Packers took a step back this offseason instead of taking another step forward. The Cowboys are frauds. And the Cardinals have shown you they have been unable to win the big game. They choked down the stretch. So if you are Tampa Bay, if you're Tom Brady, you look around the landscape of the NFC, your division is already won. Like I get it's March 28th right now. You've already won your division. Start past out the hats. Start pass out the shirts. Get some cigars if you want to celebrate. You are already the 2022 NFC South champions. Jameis Winston in New Orleans now with no Champagne is not being here. Panthers have no quarterback right now, no direction. And the Falcons are tanking. Openly tanking. So you are going to win that division easily. Whereas, and again, there's only one team you got to worry about um, in the conference, and the Rams. We look on the flip side in the AFC, even just their division, I would still not say the, the Dolphins are the best team. In that division, if Tom Brady does go there. I still give a slight edge, slight edge. I think the Buffalo Bills would still be my pick if Tom Brady goes to the Dolphins to win that division. So right now, in my opinion, you still aren't the best team in your own division. Then you gotta contend with the likes of Patrick Mahomes, Joe Burrow, Russell Wilson, Justin Herbert, Deshaun Watson, Josh Allen. You gotta deal with all of those young stud quarterbacks. In, uh, in your way, on your path to the playoffs. Like, you you know, we can map out here a road to the Super Bowl. If you're the Buccaneers, you could face, I don't know, Kirk Cousins maybe in the first round. You could take on Kyler Murray or Dak Prescott in the second round and then face Matthew Stafford in the NFC title game. Or you can have that route. You can take on, let's say, Joe Burrow in the wild card weekend let's say, Deshaun Watson in round number two and Patrick Holmes in round three? Would you rather go through, let's say, a Cousins-Dak-Stafford road to the Super Bowl or would you rather go on a Burrow-Watson-Mahomes run to the Super Bowl? You know which one you're taking and it's not even close. It's not even a question. So again, why would Tom Brady willingly leave the better team that like he's on right now in Tampa Bay To go to a harder conference where you go from just one team you got to worry about in beating. So now there are probably six or seven teams that are on par with you or even better. That doesn't make much sense. It doesn't make much sense. So I hear the report, Dale Arnold again, who was the first person to say Tom Brady when he was leaving New England was going to Tampa Bay. He's reporting that the Dolphins and Tom Brady are working on a trade. And that he thinks that he would not be surprised if Tom Brady is playing for the Dolphins next season, not the Buccaneers. I just don't think it makes much sense. Whether it's a team perspective, I think the team is built better in Tampa than it is in Miami, and whether it's a conference perspective, because that AFC is a conlet, it is extremely tough. Whereas you're on the other side in the NFC, it is frankly a cakewalk outside of one team. Tom Brady came back to win. He is driven by one thing, winning. He has his eyes set on one prize and one prize only, the Super Bowl. He's in a much better spot, much better chance to win a Super Bowl in Tampa than he is in Miami. So I'm curious your thoughts here. Does it make sense in your mind for Tom Brady to go play for the Dolphins this season? Him working on a trade from Tampa to Miami, does it make sense for Tom Brady? And if so... Where do the Dolphins rank in the AFC? I don't think they're an elite team. I put them in the Super Bowl contender category with teams like the Chargers and the Bengals, but I don't think this team is on the same level right now as, let's say, the Broncos, even the Chiefs after the Tyreek Kill trade, the Bills or the Browns. I think they are clearly a step behind, even if they have Tom Brady. Those four teams that just listed, I think they're on par with more of the Chargers and the Bengals. So... The bucket, uh, the Dolphins would not be an elite team in my mind right now, and the road is way harder in the AFC than it is in the NFC. So, does it make sense in your mind for Tom Brady to play for the Dolphins this season? Tweet me at Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter or WWSRN underscore Radio uh, Worldwide Sports Radio Network on Facebook and also YouTube, same handle, Worldwide Sports Radio Network. So, get your thoughts here. Does it make sense for Tom Brady? To go from the Bucks to the Dolphins next season. And when we return on the show, we'll get your thoughts. And also, the Nets and the Sixers. Whew. Horrible, horrible Sunday for both of those organizations. Why they got a major dose of reality. I'll explain why that is when we return to the Ryan Hakey show right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network.
0: Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show, right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network.
1: And welcome back into the Ryan Hickey Show. Where else? But the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. As always, the 10 o'clock hour is brought to you by LC Designs. Sarcouture boards are perfect for all occasions. Just make sure your guests are both happily fed with some delicious and Aesthetically pleasing charcuterie boards made by Lauren Clark. So make sure you check her out, lcdesignsnyc.com, lcdesignsnyc.com for more information. So some breaking news here. I want to get to the Nets and the Sixers in just one second, but we do have the team that will be featured in Hard Knocks this summer. It is the Detroit Lions. They are going to be the darlings of hard knocks this fall, or really this summer, I should say. Now, let me say this. <sighs> Very uninspiring. Not a lot of storylines I think people are going to care about when it comes to the Lions. Jared Goff, we know, is a placeholder. I don't think the Lions are going to draft a rookie quarterback. Now, Dan Campbell, I think, will be entertaining. I'm interested to see what Dan Campbell's like in practice on a day-to-day basis. We know what his press conference is like, right? Starting the first one with, we're going to bite people's kneecaps off. And he always has some, you know, high energy or or some interesting quote that's pretty funny. But the Lions just don't really give you a lot. There's not a lot of household names that we know. There's not a lot of interesting characters that I feel like they're going to captivate the audience. Hard Knocks is, it's interesting. It's watered down to start, you know, it's been a show that used to give you a lot more access and a lot more behind the scenes and raw footage than they do now. I mean, now with the Cowboys last year, it's basically an infomercial. How great are the Cowboys? How great are their facilities? What, you know, how much praise can we heap on Jerry Jones? There was not a lot that I thought was really real at the Cowboys. And I'll be honest, I didn't even finish Hard Knocks last year. I didn't finish Hard Knocks the year before that. The last Hard Knocks I watched that was the full 5 episodes was the Cleveland Browns. What was that? 3 years ago? At this point? 4 years ago with, with when they had Baker Mayfield and Hugh Jackson as the head coach that, you know, that eventually led to a very interesting season where Hugh Jackson was fired. So I guess that was 2018. Um, since then, I have not watched a full Hard Knocks through. Whether it's a joint one with the Rams and the Chargers, whether it's going to be, you know, whether it's last year at the Cowboys and now this year at the Lions. Just not a lot there that pops for you. So that is the, the team that will be featured in Hard Knocks this season. I did enjoy the in-season Hard Knocks with the Colts. hope they do that again. Uh, I think it's an interesting look, and that way you can actually see at least a little bit more storylines. You could see, you know, when things develop on Sunday, you could see how they are either game plan throughout the week or how, if a team messes up, where the holes were. So it's cool to see... Uh, a behind-the-scenes view of the week leading up to the game and then seeing how the game played out. So I like the in-season hard knocks, but the training camp edition with the Lions this year, ugh, not great, not really too enticing. So as we know, yesterday, Sunday, was a brutal day for Will Smith. It was a brutal day for Chris Rock because whether the, the slap was real or not, either Chris Rock got slapped in front of everyone, which is frankly embarrassing. Whether Chris Rock was in the right or the wrong, I, what he said, I, I didn't have a big problem with. But if that was a real slap, it's more humiliating. It's more embarrassing if you're Chris Rock that you got slapped on national TV. Um, if you're uh, Will Smith, I mean, dude, come on. What are we doing here? It's not even that bad of a joke. Let's get your money's worth. So either way, it was a, it was a bad day for those two gentlemen. But that wasn't, you know, they weren't the only two. That had pretty rough Sundays. They kind of woke up with some Sunday scaries um, this morning. Went to bed with maybe with some Sunday scaries last night. I thought the Nets and the Sixers each had just a brutal Sunday as well. Both teams suffered some bad losses that I think show why neither are winning a title this season. If you're a Sixers fan, obviously your goal is title or bust. If you're a Nets fan, now that Kyrie is back full-time, you still think, all right, Chavy Chip is within our reach. But I think yesterday was a humbling reminder that neither team, Sixers or the Nets, are winning a championship this season. And Sarah Brooklyn, they lose to the Hornets 119-110 in Kyrie Irving's home debut. He finally made a, a home game appearance for the first time since the playoffs against the Bucs last year. The most concerning part, though, is not that you lost to the Hornets in Kyrie's return that he played awful. It's not even that. The most concerning part by far is is where that loss puts Brooklyn in the Eastern Conference standings. With that loss, they are now tied for 8th place with the aforementioned Hornets. But because Charlotte won that game and won the season tiebreaker, and won the season series, I should say now they have the tiebreaker the Hornets do. So even though they have the same record, the Hornets are in 8th, and the Nets now are in ninth with just 7 games to go. So if that doesn't change, If these standings where the Nets are in ninth, the Hornets are in eighth, if they stay for the final seven games and going to the playoffs, that is a huge, huge L for the Nets because now they got to win two games just to make it into the playoffs. Right now, right, when they're in the playing tournament, which they're not going to get out of, you're a seven or eight seed, you got a little bit, you know, of wiggle room because number one you win one game you're in and you're the seventh seed so you get whether it's a heat whether it's a Celtics, you get a little bit easier matchup we'll say in the first round but also too if you lose that game your season's not over like if the if the raptors which currently have moved out of seventh and into sixth but if the raptors let's say are the team in seventh and the nets are in eighth well Kyrie irving won't be able to play in toronto but even if you lose that game, your season's not over because you will play the winner of the 9-10 matchup. So you still have a little bit of leeway if you lose that 7-8 game. Whereas if you're a 9-10 and right now they be going against the Hawks, if Trey Young goes off in that game, and let's say Kyrie struggles again like he did on Sunday, you lose. You're done. There's no second chances. There's no, you know, margin for error. Your season is over. So even though the Nets out of the, let's say, five teams battling for the four playing spots, right, the Hornets, the Cavaliers, the Raptors, and the Hawks, those are the four teams with the Nets that are jockeying for either the the sixth position through the 10th position. The Nets are the most talented team out of those five, right, Kyrie and KD right there are better than what the Hornets have, better than what the Cavs do that they have, better than the Raptors, better than the Hawks. With that said, though, that's a dangerous game to play, especially if you're sitting in the ninth seed. we got to win two games in a row just to be able to make the playoffs. It's a dangerous game to play when one off night ends your season. Like yesterday, Kyrie Irving was just 6-22 from the floor. He really struggled for three and a half quarters of the game, knocking down any shots. He was extremely inefficient, and whether it was nerves, whether it was excitement, whether he's trying too hard in his first game back in Brooklyn, or... Whether there's the fact that they were, you know, he was playing just a second back to back all season as the Nets played in Miami uh Saturday night, and then played the Hornets last thing, you can chalk it up to a few different excuses. But if Kyrie Irving has an off night in a playing tournament you know, next month, there's no, oh well, they'll get him next time. Their season's done. When you're in that ninth or tenth spot, you have no wiggle room. So at least now, if you if you are an eighth, at least you have some sort of margin for error if you lose the game. But losing yesterday's game, losing the tiebreaker to the Hornets, just reminds you, if you're a Nets fan, how you know hard the road to hoe is. How difficult it is just to be able to get into the playoffs before you can even worry then about who your opponent is. And guess what? Your opponent. It's going to be a gauntlet. Because especially if they sit in that 9 10 matchup, if they don't get out of the ninth seed, let's say the Hornets hold on to the eighth seed, now at best, at best, even if you win both games, you are going against the number one seed because you'll be sliding in the eighth, excuse me, in final playoff spot. And guess what? When you look at the standings right now, soaring all the way up to first place in the East are the Boston Celtics. Hottest team in the NBA, they won their sixth game in a row on Sunday. Since their 18 and 21 start, they are 29 and 7 on the season. They are number one in defense since that run, and they are number three in offense. So they are playing tremendous basketball on both sides of the court. Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum have been playing tremendous team basketball. If you remember early in the year, I remember Marcus Smart called out both of those players early on for being selfish. They weren't passing, they were trying too hard, and they settled for a lot of isolation shots. It was a lot of basically five guys playing one on one early in the year. That's what the Celtics offense was, and it wasn't working. Now they're playing team basketball, they're facilitating, they're getting efficient, good looks, they're passing the ball. And that's led to, again, this insane turnaround where they are 29 and 7. They are 24 and 4 in their last 28 games. The best defensive team in that stretch. Third best offensive team in that stretch. That is an awful, awful way if you're the Nets to start your postseason run to a championship with KD and Kyrie is playing the hottest team in the NBA just to get your playoff hopes started. Not to mention you still got to face maybe the Heat later on, face the Bucks later on. It is going to be an absolute gauntlet just to get out of the East. So I think the Nets. I know we talked this on Thursday. This loss to the Hornets, now moving uh, into ninth spot, the ninth place in the Eastern Conference, it's too tough. The road is too tough to get to the finals this year. Even with Kyrie back on a full-time basis, which helps, Sunday was a reminder of just how hard this road is going to be. It is going to be too difficult, I think, for the Nets to get by coming from 8th Going all the way to first in terms of you know running through the Eastern Conference or in the playoffs and making the finals. So they're not making the finals. They're not winning a championship this year. And the Sixers got another dose of reality. I thought on Sunday as well, lost to the uh, to the Suns. Which you know what? Okay, fine. No harm. One of the best teams in all the NBA, especially on you know on their home court in Phoenix. That's a tough game that you're going to win. But again, it was another reminder of what you're going to see James Harden uh, play like in the playoffs. He was, in another big game, another no-show. Just two for 11 from the field, only got eight free-throw attempts, which again, if you're going to shoot two for 11, as you know, one of the best things James Harden is doing at if he can't make shots on the field is drawing fouls. So if you're going to go two for 11, you hope, okay, maybe at least he's being physical and he's taking, you know, 12, 14, 16 free-throw attempts, at least get to the line to get something going. Only eight free-throw attempts. That's not going to cut it. It's not going to cut it when you can't hit a shot from the field. So again, in another big-time game against a big-time opponent, James Harden comes up small. This Philly fans, get used to it. Get ready for it. This is the James Harden you are going to see more times than not in the postseason. Joel Embiid has been the MVP so far this season. He's been a tremendous player. He can't do it all himself. James Harden was brought in to be the closer. James Harden was brought in to be the finisher for this team and be the missing piece to a championship run. And so far, whether it was the Nets and Ben Simmons's, we'll say quote-unquote return to Philly, even though he's just on the bench, James Harden played horribly, whether it was yesterday against the Suns, another awful game from the Beard, this is what you're going to see. see he's a, you know, he does to disappear in the playoffs. He's a disappearing act. So don't really get your hopes up if you're Philly fans. Don't really get your expectations high that James Harden's going to snap out of this and play well in the playoffs. He won't. He won't because he's never done that in his career. And it's not starting now. So Sunday was a reminder to the Sixers fans, oh, this is going to be playoff Harden coming very soon to your television screen, so get ready for it. Anytime a big opponent, anytime the moment is big, James Harden's going to shrink. And if you're the Nets, if you had optimism that, hey, Kyrie is back, maybe this team can make a run. You got a nice wake-up call on Sunday because this team, even with Kyrie back, the road to the playoffs is too hard because when you look at the standings this morning, you're in ninth place in the East. We take on right now the Hawks in the first play-in, loser goes home. Then you got to win another game just to be able to get into the play-in tournament. I think the road to hoe is too hard for the Nets to get to a title. That was uh, reinforced yesterday. So I'm curious your thoughts here. Are you with me? Sixers, Nets, cross them off, no chance to ring a title this year. Or am I overreacting? Am I being unfair, maybe, to both franchises and overreacting to, let's say, one loss on a Sunday? I hope to get your thoughts here on Twitter, at Ryan Hickey Show, or WWSRN underscore radio. You can tweet, uh, you can write on Facebook, Worldwide Sports Radio Network, or YouTube, same thing, Worldwide Sports Radio Network. When we return, speaking of the playoffs, speaking of the NBA, the Lakers, are they going to miss the playoffs? We'll discuss that when we return us into the Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio, Network. It is
0: the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. 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 Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network.
1: And welcome back into the Ryan Hickey Show. Where else? a worldwide sports radio network. We appreciate you making us a part of your Monday morning here. We just talked about who had some pretty brutal Sundays, and there is actually a good amount uh, of candidates on this early Monday morning for the worst Sunday. Obviously, Will Smith, Chris Rock, two leading candidates after what happened yesterday, which I do think the slap was fake, by the way. We'll get into that in a little bit more in a second here. The Nets... And Kyrie Irving's return home, suffered a brutal loss to the Hornets, but now puts them in ninth in the East, which is a killer. These Sixers lose to the Suns and in the process have James Harden put up another bad game against a good opponent. Welcome to what the postseason is going to be like for Philly. I think another team that is in the running for the worst Sunday are the Lakers. Because after yesterday's game, I think it's obvious now. The Lakers are going to miss the playoffs this season. For a while, no one viewed them as contenders, nor should we, but we always said, all right, they'll make the playoffs. Maybe they'll win a play-in game or two, but they're going to get smoked in the first round if they make the playoffs. Now, I don't even see a path for them to make the playoffs. Yesterday's loss was, I thought, the final nail in the coffin for their season. They fall to 10th place in the the West, which is the final play-in spot, and they are just one game up on the Spurs with just nine to go. They are in a brutally, brutally bad spot in part because last night, not only did they blow a 23 point lead to the Pelicans, a 23 point lead. Gone. blew that to the Pelicans. You also had LeBron, James hurt his ankle during the process. So let's start with that first. Because this is really you know, part of it where LeBron gets hurt, he's not going to be at 100%. he never was 100% even going to the game. But now another ankle injury is only going to make a run to the postseason even more difficult for the Lakers. He rolled his left ankle really, really badly at the um, in the first half. Now, to his credit, played and stayed in the game, finished amazingly with 39 points. Even when this guy has no legs, he's been dealing with injuries all season long to his knee to his ankle he's been in and out of the lineup he is going to be you know basically hobbled for rest of the season he is still playing at a high level but I thought it was really interesting post game when he was asked about the ankle injury and just kind of revealed honestly how much pain he was in he admitted after the ankle injury he lost all of his explosion uh so really driving to the rim was not you know a big play for him trying to blow by defenders. Now, he did have a block later on in the game, but for the most part, his jumping ability was limited. So that means he had to settle for a lot of jumpers. Now, he's hitting them, don't get me wrong, but a big part of his game, which is, you know, driving down the lane, drawing fouls, getting to the hoop, going for layups, going for dunks, that part is compromised. Now, it's just another ankle injury that LeBron said limited his explosion. He said after the game, his ankle felt horrible, Admitted he how he wasn't even sure how he was able to finish the game. This is really bad news for the Lakers because yes, he stayed in, and honestly, knowing LeBron, he's probably going to play these next you know the, this this final string of the season. He's not going to be sitting out. But now, when you have an ankle injury that already severely or that is now going to limit his abilities, it makes winning that much more harder, that much more difficult. Because guess what? Even when LeBron plays well, the Lakers still can't win. Yesterday was the 17th time this season where LeBron has scored 30 or more points in a game and has lost. Think about that. 17 games this season that the Lakers have lost when LeBron has scored 30 or more points. So even when he's playing well, the Lakers can't win. Now what are they going to do if LeBron is hobbled, if he's not playing you know, Superman? How are they going to compete? I don't see how they are. This team is in big time trouble, and now just being one game up on the Spurs, when you finish with a gauntlet of a schedule, this team is not making the playoffs. Because let's look at how they finish the season. This is a large part of why I think they're out. They finish with the second hardest finishing schedule of any team in the NBA. Let let me just rattle off quickly the games they have left. At the Mavericks, at the Jazz, home against the Pelicans, home against the Nuggets, at the Suns, at the Warriors, home against the Thunder, uh, and at Denver to close out the season. Mavs, Jazz, Pelicans, Nuggets, Suns, Warriors, Thunder, Denver. One team... Out of, those, out of those teams, the Lakers have a better record than that's the Thunder. One team. And a Thunder team that has beaten the Lakers twice this season. Twice. So sure, record-wise, the Thunder are one of the worst in, in the NBA, but they have had uh, the Lakers number this season. So you look at the Mavs, streaking hot team, they have been, you know, playing really good basketball here the second half of the season. Jazz in Utah is going to be a very tough game. Pelicans just beat uh, the Lakers last night, and they raised a 23-point deficit in doing so. The Nuggets are playing good basketball. Suns are the best team in the NBA. The Warriors right now are are banged up and not playing great at all, but again, neither the Lakers. Uh, like I said, the Thunder have already beaten the Lakers a, a couple times this season, and the Nuggets in Denver to finish out is brutal. So, I mean, we could realistically be looking at 1-8, 2-7 and, eight, two and seven here to finish out these last nine games. Like, eight games or two, so two and, two and six? One and seven? Quick math there. I apologize. But, like, that's what we're looking at. Best case. Best case. Three and five. I don't think it's enough to get it done. Because when you look at the Spurs record and who they um, are playing, they get a break. They have some tough games as well, but they have the Blazers twice. No Damian Lillard is out for the year. And you have the Rockets once. So you got three easy games if you're the Spurs in your back pocket. When you look at this Lakers schedule, there is not one gimme. It's going to be brutal down the stretch for L.A. And oh yeah, not to mention, the Spurs own the tiebreaker over the Lakers because of their conference record. So now the Lakers don't have a tiebreaker over the Pelicans, don't have a tiebreaker over the Spurs. So now you got to even, you know, do you know play even better than San antonio just to get that that 10th and final spot then you got to win two straight games just to be able to make it in to the playoffs i don't think this team is making the playoffs it's going to cap off by by missing the playoffs in its entirety the most disappointing season of lebron james's career i get injuries are a large part with it right lebron was in and out of the lineup earlier this year now suffered another ankle injury. He's been dealing with you know sore ankles and knees all season long. He's been banged up, and yet, you know, he's still been playing well. But he's been dealing with injuries. Anthony Davis has played in just thirty-seven games this season. He has been MIA uh, for most of the year. Russell Westbrook's been a horrible fit. So I do get um, some of the reason why the Lakers are here. Right? It's a large part for because injuries, and they haven't had uh, their lineup fully healthy. But it is still. Capping off what is the most disappointing season in LeBron's career. Even more disappointing because if he was playing bad, it's one thing. If he was out for a long time with an injury, that's another thing, right? Remember his first year in LA, the Lakers were in fourth place in the West. He hurts his groin on on Christmas Day and misses, you know, a large chunk of time. And by the time he comes back, the Lakers are too far out of it, too far gone. He didn't finish the season. Magic Johnson. If you remember, famously, infamously, retired without telling anyone 20 minutes before the game started. So that first season in LA was a turbulent one. But this season, with the stress, with Russell Westbrook experiment now working out, with the age that LeBron put this team together at, with a lot of injuries really derailing their season to miss the playoffs outright, I think would be the worst or, or the most disappointing season, I should say, a LeBron's career, especially when you factor in that he's been playing really well. We've seen LeBron carry teams to the playoffs. I mean, hell, his first uh, state in Cleveland. Those teams were terrible, and he was carrying them. But think about how bad the Lakers have to be where he's even playing really well and and having one of the best seasons of his career, and they still can't win. They're going to miss the playoffs. It's going to be the most disappointing season of LeBron's career, and it's going to, I think, cause massive changes this offseason. With that said, though, I, even though with LeBron uh, dealing with an ankle injury, I would still not shut him down just yet. I know he's talking about the ankle, it's going to be brutal. There's some thought of, do you just say, screw it, shut LeBron down and call it a season and get back next year fully healthy, ready to go. I wouldn't shut him down because you still are technically in the playoffs. I don't think waving the white flag this early on, with eight games left when you're a game up on the Spurs, is the right move to send to the fan base, right message to send, to the rest of the NBA. I think you still play it out. You have LeBron suck up and play. Um, Until you're eliminated, then I would probably shut LeBron down. But to this point, still play him. Hope he doesn't get hurt again. And hope magic could somehow set in to where they look at this gauntlet uh, and go four and four. And just hope that the Spurs stumble and don't get hot. But the Lakers are missing the playoffs. They're in a really, really rough spot. And it's going to be a hell of an offseason in L.A., that is for sure. So when we return to wrap up the Ryan Hickey Show on a Monday, we'll discuss the slap heard around the world. Was it real? Did uh, Will Smith actually slap Chris Rock, and also give you some final four takeaways here as the field is set. We'll do that when we return us into the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network.
0: Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show, right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network.
1: And welcome back into the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. I apologize for all the background noise here. The radiator is whistling, trying to get some heat on what is a very cold day here in New York City. My goodness gracious, it's almost April. Final week here in March and we have 30 degree temperatures. I moved in to the city March 8th. I have yet to wear my winter jacket in the city. I think today is going to be the day. Three weeks in. Very depressed. I'm ready. I'm ready for spring. I am ready for the nice weather. No more of this cold. I am done with it. Let's go. Baseball is almost here. No more winter jackets. But unfortunately, today is a day where it's required, which is why the radiator behind me is working overtime. So I apologize for the constant whistling sound. Again, we should be fully set up back in terms of having the better acoustics. On Thursday's show, I had to just order one small part. That should be coming by Wednesday. So we'll be back up and running almost at full capacity like it was back in the good old days of my home studio uh, before we moved here to New York City. So we are constantly working on getting it better. The background will change hopefully soon as well as we look to get a a little desk um, in here soon to get a nice background. I got some brick here, nice brick wall just to my left. Hopefully, we'll get that as a, as a cool background, as a, as a pretty, you know, chic background uh, for the show. So, fingers crossed that is coming again sooner rather than later. So, we're still a work in progress. We're still working on getting settled here, but I appreciate your patience in, uh, in bearing with us here. So, some interesting news I want to get to that I just saw on Twitter that I think is very fascinating. And it is the owners' meetings uh, this week. So, all the owners gathered together in Florida. A lot of the head coaches are there as well, and they are speaking to the media and Josh McDaniels had a very interesting quote uh, when it comes to the future of Derek Carr. So he was asked, are the are the Raiders working on a long-term extension for Derek Carr? What's the deal going to be? What is the uh, update on a possible contract extension? And Josh McDaniels said this according to Vic Tefer, who covers the, uh, the Raiders for The Athletic. Josh McDaniels said, quote, Derek's going to have to make decisions about what's best for him, and we have to do what's right for the team. There will be a sweet spot in there, hopefully, for everyone. Translation, what Derek Carr wants right now is too high. We are not willing to pay him what he is demanding, and we hope that his demands come down because he realizes what's best for his career is by being on this loaded team. But we need flexibility. We cannot be paying our quarterback, let's say, Patrick Holmes or Josh Allen money. Or now, Deshaun Watson money. Well, it doesn't stop there because Derek Carr's agent also responded to this. He put out on Twitter, quote, Clubs always do what's best for the team in every situation. Players, even QBs, don't expect teams to do what is best for the player. Successful negotiations always end in a sweet spot. That said, our practice is not comment publicly uh, about ongoing negotiations, end quote. So basically saying... Everyone is always looking out for themselves. And Derek Carr is gonna should do with Derek Carr, uh, what's in the best interest of Derek Carr, because teams are only going to do what's in the best interest of themselves. So basically, here it's a little game of posture, a little game of chicken. Derek Carr's agent is saying, Well, we're gonna do what's in, you know, the what's best for Derek, the team, and Joshua Daniel is saying, well, we're gonna try to do his best for the team here. This is a fascinating, fascinating situation here. Because Derek Carr led the Raiders to the playoffs. Derek Carr, you can make the argument single-handedly, along with Rich Pisaccia, those two gentlemen worked hand-in-hand to saving the Raiders' season. Once John Gruden got fired, that season started to go downhill. They started going a tailspin. And Derek Carr really kind of grabbed the Raiders and prevented them from going to a free fall, and instead helped Will, the team, to make the playoffs on an improbable run to win their final four games and make the playoffs. Great season. Here's the thing, though, about Derek Carr. Is he a top 10 quarterback in the NFL? I would say no. He's not on the level of Mahomes or Allen or Herbert or Watson or Wilson. He is in that, I would say, 12 to 15 range most years. So I'm not paying Derek Carr $40-plus a year. And now, if you're the Raiders, I don't think it's in your best interest to pay Derek Carr forty plus million dollars a year. What I would do is this: Derek Carr, this is the final year under contract. I'd play this year out. I would play this year out, see how he fits in Josh McDaniel's system, see how Josh McDaniels likes, you know, coaching Derek Carr, see how the team does, and then after the season, reassess. But right now, I absolutely am not paying Derek Carr 40 plus million dollars a season. Depending on how he does, I'm probably not even paying Derek Carr $40-plus million a season if he plays well this year. Because when you're in the AFC, you've got to realize, and I'm kind of seeing this with, with the Colts myself here as well, is if you don't have the guy, you always got to be searching. you always got to be looking for that upgrade because you right now need to find the guy. When you're the Raiders in the AFC, and you right now have the worst quarterback in the division, Justin Herbert is better, Russell Wilson is better, Patrick Holmes is better. You got to, you know, you can't commit to paying your quarterback, who is the worst in the division, on a similar or sometimes even higher pay scale than those other three quarterbacks are getting. You cannot be paying your quarterback like he's a top five quarterback when in reality he's not. That is still one of the biggest mistakes any team can commit. Any team can make is by overpaying a quarterback giving him elite money when he is by far not elite. And that's the decision the Raiders right now have to avoid. Because right now, Derek Carr is not an elite quarterback. I don't think he will ever develop into being a top five quarterback in the NFL. But when you look around the AFC, all these guys, you know, that are young are right there in the elite category. Josh Allen, Mahomes, Russell Wilson, Justin Herbert, Joe Burrow, Deshaun Watson. You know, let's not forget about Lamar Jackson, who won an MVP. Like there is a lot of young, talented quarterbacks that are going to be here for the next decade. And before committing $40-plus million dollars a year to Derek Carr, before setting your team back financially to where if Derek Carr doesn't work out, you're eating a large amount of money and making it harder for you to find that franchise guy, I am taking it year by year. I think flexibility when it comes to quarterbacks, where you don't have the guy. Right? If you don't have a top 10 quarterback right now on your team, the biggest thing you have to prioritize then at the quarterback position is flexibility. Is the ability to pivot if things don't work out. Again, being a Colts fan, I've seen the Colts in the quarterback carousel now for the last five, six years. And the biggest thing to the Colts credit, even though they have yet to find a guy, like the guy, they have also yet to commit big money To finding the guy, sure. They gave up a first round pick for Carson Wentz and that now in hindsight looks awful. It does. They took a chance on what they hoped to be a reclamation project where they hoped that Carson Wentz would regain some of the magic that he had in Frank Reich the first time those two two worked together in Philly. So the first round pick given up is, is brutal. It's a tough look, especially now when the Colts really could use that first round pick this season. But financially, they didn't commit a ton of money Where they have the flexibility, if things went south, to move off of Carson Wentz like they did. They bring in Matt Ryan. Where they have the flexibility, if Matt Ryan either doesn't play well, or if they find an opportunity next year to get their quarterback of the future, they have the ability to do so. The Raiders, I think, have not found their guy in Derek Carr. Derek Carr is a top 15 quarterback, but I think he is in the same category as Kirk Cousins. Some nice stats. I don't trust to win the big game on a consistent basis. I think for the most part, Derek Carr is, I would say, underperformed and underachieved in recent years, not counting last year, um, and has really, you know, not prevented or not allowed the Raiders to go and reach their full potential. So I'm not paying Derek Carr 40 million dollars a year to hopefully be the guy. But he hasn't shown you he can be the guy. Like, that's for me, that's the big thing. I don't pay in hope. My quarterback situation is not based on hope. I don't want to pay a quarterback and say, oh, I hope he can someday be a top five quarterback. Oh, I hope we can compete on a year in, year out basis. I hope what we saw last year is what we'll see again, you know, on a consistent basis moving forward. I don't like the idea of paying a quarterback after one good year. I don't like the idea of paying a quarterback $40 million a year and hoping he can turn into that guy. That, to me, is what the Raiders are doing if they pay Derek Carr. So I think they're right now, at least publicly, doing the right thing. Josh McDaniel is telling you, right now, what Derek Carr is asking for is too high and we're not going to pay him what he wants. we got to find that sweet spot, which means Derek Carr's number has to come down. We don't know what the number is. We don't know if he wants $50 million a year or 45 40 I have no idea. We don't know what the Raiders' number is. If they're looking to say, all right, we'll pay him $30 million a year, that's our number, that's our sweet spot, that's what we want to go for. We don't know each way what each side is looking for. But the best thing the Raiders can do right now with Derek Carr is maintain flexibility. He is not a top 10 quarterback. So you don't want to pay a quarterback in Derek Carr stature top five money because, as we know, the quarterbacks always only go up and up and up. They always one-up each other. So maybe if he's not the highest-paid quarterback, if he's not surpassing and supplanting Deshaun Watson, you still don't want to be paying him top five money, $40 million a year, when he's the worst quarterback in the division. So the best thing the Raiders can do is maintain flexibility, at the quarterback position, which means I would not give Derek Carr an extension this offseason. I would see how twenty twenty one 2022 goes. I'd see how he fits in with Josh McDaniels, how he plays with Devontae Adams and Darren Waller and Josh Jacobs. And I want to see Derek Carr, how he comes off of that 2021 season where he played really good down the stretch. I think patience right now is the best virtue for the Raiders because if you don't have a top five guy, a top 10 guy, which I don't think they have right now in Derek Carr, the best thing you can do is maintain flexibility at the quarterback position. Don't tie yourself financially to a guy that you hope one day maybe could be a top 10 quarterback without knowing for sure. Maintain flexibility to that way if Derek Carr doesn't play well in 2022 or an opportunity pops up like we've just seen, right? We just saw, you know, Russell Wilson get traded. He was disgruntled. We just saw Deshaun Watson get traded. Who knows? Maybe next year, Kyler Murray is the guy that gets traded. You need to maintain flexibility because at any point, if any quarterback becomes disgruntled, if any quarterback in the draft you fall in love with, you need to maintain financial flexibility at the quarterback spot, you don't have an elite quarterback. So that way you can always pivot and get the next guy you hope can be your franchise quarterback. Paying a good quarterback, great quarterback money, is by far the worst thing any team can do. The number one cardinal sin, I think, NFL teams could do. So if you're the Raiders right now, you don't give Derek Carr an extension. Because right now, I think the money you'd pay Derek Carr is not worth how he would perform. See how he plays with Josh McDaniels, with Devonta Adams, with with Darren Waller in 2022 and then from there reassess you got one year use that year where Derek Carr is reasonable price-wise and see how he plays before reassessing and see what the market for other quarterbacks are like next year before committing 40 plus million dollars a year to a quarterback and Derek Carr that has really never been a top 10 quarterback so far in his career maintain flexibility at the QB spot that should be the Raiders' number one priority, which means you can't give Derek Carr a contract extension this off season. So that'll do it for this edition of the Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Ryan. I appreciate you starting your week here with us on the Worldwide Sports Ryan Eric. We will be back on Thursday. So between now and then, hopefully you don't get slapped. Make sure to avoid Will Smith if he's walking down the street. Stay sane as always. Stay safe. And we'll talk to you on Thursday right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network.